We started by uh, hearing a great anthem from the choir, Lord, reminding us of your holiness and your attributes, Lord, that all flow from that holiness that you are. And then, Lord, we joined with our voices in to sing. The great choir now sings praises to our King. That's done because you've changed our hearts. We cannot sing those, Lord, uh, if you have not indwelt us and given us a, a desire to praise you, Lord. At least we cannot sing those from our hearts. So we praise you, Lord, that we can sing to you. And Lord, we've given to you the unique, the unique pleasure of the church to give to the work of the Lord, to abound in the work of the Lord. And that includes giving, Lord. And now, Lord, we turn to your word. This is where we find the basis of all of that. This is where we find truth. This is where our lives are grown and strengthened, Lord. This is what we stand upon, the truth of our God and Father, our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where we find that. As we pray that you would do great work on our hearts this morning. Cause us to be challenged, to be encouraged, to respond to the word. Lord, may us May we not be just hearers only, but may we be doers. Lord, I thank you for such a great group of people out on a mid-July Sunday, Lord. We thank you that there are so many dedicated to the local church. We thank you for those who are vacationing and getting some time of rest. We pray that you would give them great relaxation. Give them time in your word. May they enjoy you wherever they are, Lord. But Father, we have those who are not well, Lord, some battling cancer right now, others battling severe injuries, Lord, others going through procedures. Lord, you know all this. You know all those people. You know all their situations. But you tell us to petition you. So we ask you, Lord, for healing for them. We ask you for your comfort and care on them. And we ask that you help us remember them and pray for them often and care for them and do what we can to minister to them. Lord, we thank you for our missionaries. What a joy to talk to so many this week, Lord. And hear their struggles and hear their praises. They're much like ours, Lord. The church does not change from culture to language, Lord. It is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we all battle under the sun, Lord, in this life and fallen world. But our hope is in you. And I heard that across the continents this week. The hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. The hope is in the Word of God. And I pray you'd strengthen those missionaries, Lord. Now, Lord, open our ears and our hearts. Give us eyes to see your truth today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last couple of years we saw some difficult things take place that we weren't not, we're quite sure how to see how they were going to play out. Certainly COVID hit and uh, churches shut down. We even shut down for, I think, five or six weeks and we were back open. But during that shutdown, of course, pastors are talking. We, this is what we do. And guys are calling around the globe and we're trying to see, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? And, and there was a, a great concern when the church doesn't meet or, you know, how are we going to pay bills? Or, are people going to give? Um, those are genuine, you know, concerns that pastors had and elders as we wanted to see what God was going to do. And and it was amazing, report after report, we were so surprised our giving was, was better when we weren't here. It, it, it shocked us, it amazed us. And it was across the board, church after church, country after country, all around the world, giving was up when 
the church was not meeting. And we're grateful for that. We're grateful for God's people and their joyful generosity to take us through that difficult time. But I think what was truly surprising is what's taken place since COVID. And I'm, I'm going to use a lot of stuff from surveys, reading, phone calls, all kinds of things to help you understand kind of the financial state that's going on around the churches, particularly in America. Since the churches got back together, they watched the giving go down. It's pretty much across the board. Most churches that you would talk to, their giving is struggling. Um, and there's lots of reasons, right? Economies, all kinds of things that go into that. But what came with it was also difficulties and challenges. Seems like pastor after pastor, elders after elders that I speak with, whether I'm at a conference or um, visiting or doing a funeral or whatever it may be, I hear often of struggles within churches. They range from leadership issues, discontentment, growing attacks from societal's moral changes and attacks on the church, plummeting giving, frustrations, people moving away to go to different places without even telling their own pastors they're leaving. Um, these have created great difficulties. Now, certainly we believe and hold to the sufficient scriptures. We believe God's word addresses all of this. There's answers for this, everything the church faces today. And we continue to tackle these things through the sufficiency of scriptures, through preaching and teaching and counseling and instruction and so forth. That's our goal. We always take these things on from God's word. But as we look at these challenges and... We look at 1 Corinthians, we see some similar problems. We see a church that has been disobedient in so many ways. When we began 1 Corinthians, we began to realize that this was a church that was rejecting truth at times. And they'd fallen on hard times and and and. and Paul's challenging them in issue after issue, trying to get their eyes back on the Lord Jesus Christ, back on the truth of God's word versus on society and pagan festivals and, and, and just their own selfish desires. And it's interesting, even in a church that has these struggles, you'll notice at the end of 58, he makes this strong charge, this strong encouragement to the struggling church. Notice verse 58, 1 Corinthians 15. Be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now I find that fascinating that he would tell a church that can't get the resurrection right. Right? See, see this is what Paul does. No matter where you're at, he wants you to get your feet secure in Christ. That's the only answer. You got marriage problems, you have financial problems, you got issues in your life. The answer is Christ. It's Christ and His Word. And if you don't get your feet solid in that, you're going to struggle the rest of your life. And I'm, quite frankly, you'll probably have a lot of doubts about the end of life. And so he's always trying to bring them back. Now, as we've noted throughout our first our study in 1 Corinthians, this church had many difficulties. And yet Paul keeps challenging them. He wants them to abound in the work of the Lord. I, I just got, word hung up is not probably not the word, but just got entrenched in that phrase. Abounding in the work of the Lord. What a strong word. Over the next couple of weeks, I am going to park in this verse. In fact, I will uh, dissect it a little more, even more deeply. And, and my goal is to help Riverbend, help us, 
strive to understand what it means to be steadfast. What does that mean? What does it mean to be unmovable? And, and also take on the opposite of that. What is the opposite of steadfast? What is the opposite of immovable? What does that look like for a church? What does that look like spiritual-wise? What does that look like in our families, our homes, and certainly our local gathering here? And then, are we abounding? Are we abounding in the work of the Lord? Times are difficult, aren't they? Things are changing. Things are crazy out there. I, I imagine your minds right now, you, you've had to try to capture them coming in here because you've thought about anything from illness to bills to relationships that are going south or problems. Your mind has been filled with all those things. And, and now you're trying to gather that, all of us gather that around the word of God. And I ask you the question, are you abounding in the work of the Lord? It's a good question. Are we abounding in the work of the Lord? Well, this morning I want to, take on one aspect of abounding in the Lord. And this is always a challenge, particularly for me. I don't know about other pastors, but I know for me, I want to speak about finances. And it's interesting when this comes up, when we address this, we, 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 we you know, all kinds of thoughts come. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that for a moment. But, but I want to address terms like tithing and giving to the work of the Lord and, and what that means. And clearly there was problems in Corinth church. And we'll see Paul, he's going he's gonna to jump on that, particularly in the second epistle. Uh, I'm going to refer to that at the end of the message and help you understand that they were not doing very well financially giving. Uh, he, he's gonna, I'm going to show you that. And obviously, um, finances are not the problem with the Lord, right? And I want you to think about this. He uses both our lack of finances and our abundant finances to conform us to the image of the Lord. And I know some of you are saying, I wish he would use the abundance to conform me. <laughs> Often he uses the lack of them. Or he uses your misuse of them to bring you back to conformity to him. And so these are important things, and all of that affects the church. So, so we must preach on it from time to time and, and, and do it in an appropriate way. As I thought about this, um, preaching on tithing and giving I don't do it very often. I have been here, I think, nearly eight years now. And I, I tried to look back through my notes, and I think I've only preached two sermons dedicated to giving in almost eight years. It's not something I do regularly. What I mainly try to do is preach an exalted Christ from the all-sufficient scriptures and, and, and preach on his precious and glorious work that he's done for us. And let that be our motivation. I, I Honestly, that's where I live most of the time. That's where our elders, that's, I think most of you find your motivation from. But there is times, and, and now is one of those times, and the elders and I have been working through this and praying and discussing the financial challenges that our church is up against and we believe it's time to just take a Sunday or two and talk about these things. Wednesday night, we look forward to sharing some of these challenges with you. We pray you'll come and you pray that the Lord will lay you upon your heart to participate with that. Now, as I begin to address this subject of giving, I begin to think about categories that people may fall into. And, and it wasn't my thinking. I read lots of articles, um, lots of surveys of where the church is. We get these things sent to us. And some of them... Uh, the churches that they're surveyed are, are not 
the most in-depth biblical churches, so we, we take them with a grain of salt, and we don't believe in the 3% either way. <laughs> it could be more than that. But, but it's interesting what we learn as we look at it. And, and let me list some categories, and you may fall into one of these. Um, maybe this doesn't get you, but, but let, let me put this out and, and begin to think through this. When the subject of giving comes up, you can fall into several of these categories. One may be those who faithfully give. Maybe that's you. You faithfully give. You have already in your heart and mind set apart, say, 10% of or, or even more of your income to give to the work of the Lord. That's you and your, that's what God has put on your heart. In fact, I think it's many of you who often encourage me <laughs> to preach on giving. And I, and I hear you, and I appreciate the way you address that. It's kind and it's, it's respectful. I, I appreciate those concerns. And so there's a group there. They, they have set in their heart to give to the Lord. They, they, they set that aside. The first thing they do in their budget is they make sure that they give to the Lord. No matter how the bell, bills are going to fill out, no matter how difficult things may be, they have, they have given in their heart to the Lord. I, I think that's good. And there's probably quite a few people in here that fall in that category. Well, there's some other categories that might be those who only give a small portion of their income. And there's reasons for this, largely because of poor financial choices they've made. They have got themselves in a position where they can't give. They may desire to give more, but they can't. And, and then maybe they, they're struggling with loving this life on this earth more than what's to come. And that way of life becomes that real pool, and that's where their treasure is, and so there is their money, as the Bible says so clearly. Now, these folks don't like sermons on giving most of the time, and they're thinking about walking out right now. And I'm sorry, please bear with me, forgive me. I want to help you, and I care about Christ's church, and I care about you. Some of these will leave the church. They often leave church. They'll say they, all they do is preach on money. And yet, I, and that might be true. I, I have heard some of the elders were telling me I'm not raised in the South and the West. Things are a little different in church out there. And they were telling me sermons of guys preaching and arm twisting that you go through the South. And man, you just really put the screws to you. That's not what I'm going to do today. And so I think, though, some people equate preaching on money is because they don't know what God's doing. They don't know the lives that are, uh, say just a church like this, the lives that are touched through this church around the globe. And they don't understand the work of the Lord. They're there because, yo, you got good children's ministry. Boy, your music's good. The preacher's a little long, but, but I can put up with them. Um, they're there to meet their own needs, right? And, and that's a problem. Until we realize that church is a family, it is where we come together and we worship the Lord um, together. It, without him, we have nothing. We approach issues like this very selfishly, and we fight them in our hearts. Well, then there's another group that may struggle, and this is probably because of just lack of faith. There's lack of faith. This may come from a poor view of God. They they don't understand the passage that I had Gary read this morning. I, I, I'm going to allude to that passage. Um, but that passage is beautiful, isn't it? I mean, God so clearly tells us that he loves us. 
and he will not let you be destitute. I mean, passage after passage reminds us of the great love the Father has for his children, and yet some we, we we're afraid to give because our faith in God that he's really going to take care of us, that he's really going to meet our needs, that I really can't give first to you, God. I've got to pay all these bills and do all this stuff first, and then if I have anything left, and so it's often a matter of faith. I, I think these dear brothers and sisters generally want to live by faith. They don't want to live by sight, but their theology has not yet caught up from their mind to their heart. Oh, God's great. I love singing this song. Oh, those were great songs about the attributes of God. But I can't trust him with my life or my finances. And so it I think we fall into a case where there is a lack of faith. In this case, there's those who give to the Lord very sparingly or whatever they have left over. The desire's there, but their faith in the Father's ability is, is still weak. Still, there's another group that may be in here, may not be, but there's those who have never been taught. And I hear that quite a bit. People will come up to me and say, Pastor, our giving's down because you just don't teach on enough and, and, and not, people just don't know. There's a lot of new Christians and they don't know what God says about tithing. And that may be true. Maybe you're here and you've never heard a message on that. I know there's new believers in the building today and we're going to see some of them baptized. And so it's one of the reasons we're doing this. They may not know how God always encourages people to be engaged with him monetarily. The Bible's full of that. I'm going to show you that today at a chronological look at it. Maybe they heard preaching on giving and it was not biblical or they've they've surfed the TV and saw the preachers who needs a new $54 million jet. And they go, wow. I drive a Ford. Just if you're wondering. Most likely, it's because they haven't heard the biblical teaching on tithing or probably Giving gifts to the Lord is the more the New Testament, New Testament tone. I'm going to show you that. Tithing seems to fade out after the ministry of Jesus um, and into the New Testament. turns more to a gift, a giving back to the Lord, a portion of what he has given to us. They just don't understand that yet. And so they need to understand the gospel. They need to understand Christ and who he is and his glory. And then that helps them learn to be givers. But I think some people who have not, they need that too, right? We need to be motivated, overwhelmed by the goodness of our God and Jesus Christ. That's why we serve the Lord, isn't it? Otherwise, it's just legalism. I mean, if you're here today because you're checking the box that you went to church and you hope God blesses your business, friend, you're in trouble. (laughs) That's not worship. Worship is motivated by what our Lord has done. He who is rich became poor for us. We'll see as Paul challenges One more group that, and again, there's probably more than this, but finally there's those who give large sums to ministries outside the local church. And they give very small to their own church family that's keeping watch over their soul. And there's there's some reasons why that. Often people think that large churches have big budgets and and they just don't need money. There's plenty of givers. Well, what happens if that kind of makes its way through? (laughs) Oh, yeah, there's plenty of givers here. Oh, yeah, no, there's plenty of givers. And pretty soon you realize there's not plenty of givers. And in and, and a church like ours or spiritually mature churches, they, we attract individuals who want to be with us, want to partner with us, want us to join what they're doing around the world. And that's great, praise the Lord, for those things. 
But the surveys show that many people are not giving to their local church. They're giving to ministries outside, and, and those ministries certainly need to be supported, and those are good things. But if the local church fails, who will be the ones that care for your soul? I remember years ago having a conversation with an elder at a conference, and I preached on something. I don't remember what it was on, but he came up and he said, he was very defensive, and he said, Pastor, look, I don't give to our church financially because I give all of my time and effort. <laughs> I said, wow. You don't give financially to your own church? How, how do you stand in your pulpit? The Bible says elders are our examples. They're leaders. We lead by example. That's why we're here. We're not perfect. We're certainly fallible. But we lead by example. I'm just trying to share some of this so you understand where people's mindsets often go in order to justify what they give or don't give. There's a few cases that there could be those who are maybe mad at the church. They disagree with something that took place, so they withhold funds or they transfer them somewhere else, and, and that happens. That's showing in surveys. Uh, I'm not giving to my local church because they did something I don't like. Well, there's probably a lot of issues there that you need to be careful of, and I would start with a plank. The Bible's pretty clear on that. Doubtless, there's a lot you probably don't understand, but it still comes down as where your treasure is, there's your heart. Christ loves the local church. He died for the church. And it needs to be funded. Now, certainly, this does include everything, right? Um, I, I thought about people, spouses that have unsaved uh, spouses, right? I mean, there's trials and tribulations there, you know, and how do I give, and my husband doesn't, or my wife, or whoever. Yeah, we see that. But you get the idea here, the challenge that the local church faces in different economies, and different times, and, and different issues that are going on when it comes to tithing or giving. And so Wednesday night, our desire is to share some of that with you, share what our challenges are. And look, we have talked many times as elders, we say, look, if this is the level God has us at, we must make the changes to live within it, and we will. And those are drastic, but we will, because that's what God has given us. Just like you, you have a budget for your family. If you live above those means, you're disobedient, and we will do the same. But what can we learn from the New Testament? Most of the New, De New Testament churches, as Paul refers to them, he praises them for their ability to give. And, and in some cases, he said they gave beyond their means. I, 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 I'm still working on that phrase. We're going to come back to it. But then there's the Corinthian church. <laughs> and history tells us they're one of the more wealthier churches, and yet Paul has to give, and we'll see this in chapter 16 in a minute, he has to tell them to give on the first day of the week because they seem not to be given on the first day of the week. They don't give. First day of the week is Sunday is when they gathered. All the other churches were helping out with the weaker churches and the stronger and the, uh, the more churches in more difficult areas, the persecuted churches, and Corinth wasn't. And so I think this is a good text. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So before we look at the state of Corinth, I want to do a quick little historical view through the Bible of what tithing and giving looks like. Number one, God has historically desired his people to respond financially to his grace. God has historically desired his people to respond financially to his grace. Well, 
did a very simple study, a little word search on tithing or tithe and giving and those type of things. And it led me to quite a few passages. And I want to start in the book of Genesis chapter 14. This is the very first place we find the word tithing given. And this is, these are important. This will help build our theology, our understanding of giving, how God's people have given to him down through the ages. Chapter 14, we all know this passage, I hope. Um, Lot has gone to the, the nicer place of the land. Abraham gave him a choice. He took the nicer place. He ended up in Sodom and Gomorrah, which we know is going to be a problem a little later, chapter 19. Um, uh, but here um, becomes a war, and kings come against Sodom, and they, they, take, they take Lot and his families and, and all their possessions, and they take them captive. And amazingly, in this chapter, Abraham gathers 318 trained men. Now, this guy's a farmer and a nomad. He's venturing around the desert. (laughs) And he puts together 318 trained men to go fight four or five kings and all of their warriors, and God gives him the victory. On the way back from the victory, you'll see in verses 19 and 20, he meets a figure called Melchizedek. He's called the king of Salem. We know that would eventually be Jerusalem. He's the priest of the Most High God. Fascinating, mystical person in a sense, right? He has no heritage and where to come from. He's really a type. He, he points to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are those that believe it's Christ incarnate at this point dealing with this. But Abraham meets him and blesses him. And notice in verse 20, he blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abraham, this is Melchizedek, the God of the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God the Most High, who has delivered our enemies into our hands. And then here's the phrase, he gave him a tenth of all. That's the first sign of tithing. That's where it comes from. Notice there's no command for others to do so, but Abraham did it. It's clearly an act of worship. And he did it because God had granted him a great victory. So our first encounter with tithing is one where the giver is not giving to God because of the law, because there's something written, or a preacher preached it. It's one that he gives in response to the gracious victory that God has done in his life. Next one, we go to uh, Genesis 28. Next time we find the word used is Genesis 28, verse 22. Here we find Jacob, he's asleep with a rock as a pillow. Didn't never quite get that one, but I guess if you're out there in the wilderness, you've got to make do. And he has a dream there at Bethel in which God promises him that he'll be with him. And he's, and he's really repeating the great Abrahamic covenant. He'll, he'll make a great nation out of him, great lands, many descendants. You see that in verses 13 through 15. Jacob responds with a vow to him in verse 20 through 22, which results in this phrase, he promises to, and uh, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. You see that? This is where that term tithing, in fact, the word tenth in the Hebrews means 10%, right? So as you look at this, there's some real important truths of what Jacob says here. Notice that he recognizes everything that he has is a gift from God. So this is good, right? We are talking about Old Testament. We're not in the New Covenant here yet. But there are some central truths that transpire and come all the way through of all of God's people. Is Jacob says, look, God has given me everything. Everything is a gift from God. Therefore, his tithe is not really something he has created himself. 
is what he's saying here. But it's God's stuff, and I'm going to give back a, a, a tenth of God's stuff to him. Now, Jacob tithe is a statement that, that we all need to understand. He, he, he sees everything that he has is of God's. And don't miss that Jacob, yes, gives a tenth percent of what his God has given him back with him, but he gives with no strings attached. He realizes it's his, his wealth and all that he has is out of his control, and it's up to the purposes of God what he does. So I don't think Jacob meant that since God gave me a tenth, I'm going to be a good steward of a tenth, but the rest of it I'm not. I, I think what Jacob's saying is all that I have I'm going to serve you with, but I'm going to give you a tenth back. I think that's what he's saying. Now, we look a little further to the time of Moses than the time of the giving of the law, right? Tithing became part of the law. It helped establish the government, establish this baby nation that is now coming out of Egypt. And, and there's several key texts that help us understand that. If you've been with me on Wednesday nights, I've been teaching through the Pentateuch, and I hit this passage not long ago, Leviticus chapter 27. Turn there with me real quick. I think this is important to have just a bit of a biblical history lesson to understand where this comes from. Leviticus 27, 30 through 34, follow along as I read quickly. Thus all the tithes of the land, of the seed of the land, and of the fruit of the trees is the Lord's, it is holy to the Lord. If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithes, he shall add to it one-fifth of it. For every tenth part of the herd or the flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He is not to be concerned whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it, or if or if he does exchange it, then both it and the substitute shall become holy, and it shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments which the Lord God commanded Moses and the sons of Israel at Sinai. So here at the end of Leviticus, the law is summed up, and, and, and the tithe here is explained clearly. Namely, the produce of the fields, the grains of the produce of the trees, and the fruits and the herds and the flocks, this was to be given a portion of this to the Lord. Now remember, Israel's monetary system would have been very limited coming out of slavery. Um, and so God is speaking mostly as he's preparing them to go into the land where they will have crops and herds and all of those things. Right now they're kind of staggering through the wilderness and, and trying to make on what they brought out of Egypt. Now, the next time we see the word tithe is another passage I preached recently, Numbers chapter 18. Turn there with me. Again, I think it's important to kind of see a history and how God deals with his people. Verse 21, to the sons of Levi, behold, I have given you, given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for every, for their service, which they perform the service of the tent of meetings. The sons of Israel shall not come near the tent of the meeting again, or they will bear the sin and die. <clears throat> Only the Levites shall perform the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity, and it shall be a perpetual state throughout your generations, and among the sons of Israel they shall have no inheritance. For the tithe of the sons of Israel, which they offer as a offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore I have said concerning them, they shall have no inheritance among the sons of Israel. Now, here, the clear point is being made in these central verses. He's, he's summing up the law here in, in, in giving and coming to the Lord with these things. Is that not only does God require the priest and the Levite 
to carry a high responsibility role in their relationship between God and the people, but he's calling them to great sacrifice. Aaron and his sons and the rest of the Levites were to, were to be different than the rest of the nation. They had no inheritance. They, they were not like the rest of the tribe. Notice in verse 20 it said, the Lord is to be their inheritance. They were to be separated for his service and, and, and what was rightfully and naturally given to others, they were denied. They were not to have those things so that they could be available to the Lord. And God desired his servants not to be entangled in the normal affairs of life where you create finances. He did not want them. And so he created a tithe to take care of those who take care of the temple and, and intercede between God and them. Another text, he, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14, the next one we really come into contact with this word. This one is a, a little more deep and a little more fascinating when you study it. Look, look at with it, Deuteronomy 14, 22 and following. You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year, and you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name, most likely future Jerusalem there, the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herds, your flocks, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always." If the distance is too great for you and you are not able to bring the tithe since the place where the Lord God has chosen to set his name is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then you can exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place where the Lord God chooses. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for auction, for sheep, for wine, for strong drink, whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. Also you shall not neglect the Levite who is, who is in your town, for he has no portion and inheritance among you. And at the end of the third year, you shall bring out all the tithes of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, the alien, the orphan, the widow who are in your town, shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands which you do." Now, that's a mouthful, but you begin to understand this tithe was to help them, right? And they were to make this yearly trip to the holy place, which would later be Jerusalem. And these people were to take this tithe and to place it there. And they were also to to partake in it. And they were supposed to have a a feast of joy as they gave to the Lord. And I I love the terminology there because it teaches that giving is not a burden. God, God taught this. Giving is not a burden. It's joyful. As you drop something in the basket that went by or you punched something online or however you choose to give here when you did that did you ever think of joy when you did it see that's what God wants he wants us to give with joy knowing that our father in house heaven knows us and loves us he did not save us to drown us see this is what he tries to get across to his people I love the phrase in verse 23 so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always well, fear there is the word. We, we would translate it worship very easily. You would always be a worshiper of the Lord. And so what's the opposite? If you don't give, it's, it's a lack of worship in our life. And he wanted the nation to understand that. There's fascinating things here. We see the grace of God that even if it's too far away, 
and, and it's too difficult to get your herds there and, and maybe all your apples or whatever you've gathered, you can sell those things. And then when you get there, it, it's just God making provision for his people to give to him. Again, the tithe is, is not to be totally consumed. It's to be shared with the Levites as well. And so Levites were scattered among the tribes. They had no land of their own, but they were scattered among these other 11 tribes, and they were set apart for these religious purposes to to help people be reconciled with God. And so the tithe was given to God, not only in the sense that it be eaten in a festival way, but to care for those who cared for them. Verse 28 and verse 29 are fascinating verses. At the end of three years, there was another tithe that was given, and this was for the helpless. The Bible says here for the aliens, for the orphans, for the widows. I mean, this is James 1.27 type stuff, isn't it? There, there are needs. We have a diaconate here, men who sit on our, our deacon board, and, and we're looking for more men who care for souls, and, and they deal with so much of this. Uh, in our church, and I'm so grateful for them. I just met with them Wednesday, and we just talked about, hey, how, how is our widows in our church doing? How, what, what's going on? Where, where, where are those struggling? Because they're in touch with that and help lift that load off the elders' shoulders to do that. And, and already, way back, thousands of years ago, we see God making provision for that. So, so funds, yes, for a church like ours do salaries and keep lights on and ministry around the world, but they also meet the needs of those who just don't have any. And God's setting this in order way back then. Verse 29 closes the, prom- the promise of the blessing on the people that if they're faithful in this and tithe with mercy to those in need, they should do it all with thanksgiving. It's a good reminder. He, notice he says, given to God in those verses. Given to God, but given to people. I like that. I caught that when I was studying this this week. I said, The text says that we give to God, but it's given to people because he lists the aliens, the orphans, and the widows. And and that's really what we do. And I've always said this for many, many years. When we give to the Lord, we're actually investing in people. Do you realize that? You invest in people. You invest in pastors. You invest in biblical counselors. You invest in Sunday school teachers. You invest in, in all kinds of people who are gathered around the name of the Lord. And that, and that doesn't stay here. It goes overseas. It goes all over the world. And, and when you look at this passage, he's saying, when you give to me, you're investing in the lives of those that I want to use in a certain way. Whether that's the Levites or the alien. And so I, I, I wrote this in my notes. We cannot make God wealthier. Is that not a true statement? So why are we giving to God? Here, God, I hope you can use this. Did you hear he came up short this month or something? When we give to God, we invest in lives. We invest in the gospel. We invest in caring for souls. I mean, think about what possibly could we give that would satisfy God, right? As though he has some kind of needs. But we worship him when we give away that we care about his name and we care about the way we treat people. And here he's helping us understand that. The scriptures are consistent. They remind us over and over that God honors people who give from their heart. I, I just thought of Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Giving God through faith pleases God. The Bible goes on that he's a rewarder of those who give by faith. Those who come to him 
by faith. So the promise is not to make us rich or wealthy, but, but it's to understand that we trust God. You trust God. That's what we find. A couple more passages real quick. I'm going to refer to these. We don't have time to look at them. Second Chronicles chapter 31, 5 through 6. Hezekiah is coming out of a terrible time in Judah and the southern tribes. They have been involved with pagan altars and pagan idols. And he comes in. I love Hezekiah. He's an interesting character. But he tears those all down. He comes to the temple. It's in disarray. It's not anything like the law tells him they're supposed to be. And he says, look, people, we've got to fix this. And he calls on them, and, and the people just outpour, and they give great amount, and he replaces all the things that were broken down in the temple. It's a beautiful thing. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 27, this is an amazing thing. After 70 years of captivity in Babylon, and, and Greed, uh, Mede, Persia, and, and so forth, all the ones that ruled over, after 70 years, they're released, and 50,000 Jews return to Jerusalem that is in ruins with its temple. And as they rebuild the walls and they rebuild the temple, they find the law and they begin to open the law out and, and, uh, and begin to read it. And in chapter 8, Nehemiah sets a pulpit up and he begins to teach the law to them. And they discover within it the tithes that both deserving of the Levites and the house of God. And he says in verse 38, thus we will not neglect the house of God. He's talking about tithing. That's where the word's used. And so when we don't tithe, we neglect the house of God. That's the idea there. Probably the most difficult one, and I'll end with this in the Old Testament, is the strongest rebuke comes from the prophet Malachi. Uh, You've got to come back and see this one. Look, look, it's the last chapter in the Old Testament. So if you go to Matthew, go left. Malachi chapter 3, 8 through 10. This, Malachi comes after the prophets, Nehemiah and Ezra. He may have overlapped in there somewhere. Um, the nation, again, is slipping away rapidly. They're, they're serving out of duty, not delight. So the temple has been fixed, but yet there's not a love for God. They're doing it because this is what the law says. They've slipped into just outward worship. They're willing, they're willing to do that. And so look what Malachi says to him, verse 8. This is strong language. Will a man rob God? Yet, you are robbing me. But you say, how have, I, how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings, he says. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bringing the whole tithe, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there will be food in my house. Test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. What a statement. They, they weren't given to God. And he says, look, this is the way I do things. I reward those who faithfully give. Now as we transition from Old Testament, New Testament, things do change. My second thought kind of transitions us. When Jesus' ministry was going on, this is what we saw. I, I said it this way in point number two. Pervasive corruption of legalistic tithing during Jesus' earthly ministry. As I studied this, I couldn't think of how to say it any better. When we come to the New Testament, we, we come to a real, a real change in tithing. Uh, Jesus mentions tithing only twice. And both times, it's in reference to a very uh, legalistic, outward, put the show on me, 
type of giving, and he's not happy with it at all, as you can imagine. Matthew chapter 23 is the great text on woe chapter. If you want to cross-reference it, you find similar ones in Luke chapter 11, but these are the woe passages. What's interesting, he gets down to verse 23, 23, 23, Matthew 23, 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Now, he's not saying there's scribes, there's Pharisees, and then there's hypocrites. He's saying scribes and Pharisees are hypocrites. That's what he's saying there. And here's why he says it. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So this is a beautiful thing. If you don't understand this, this is how, this is how legalistic the leaders of Israel had got. They started counting out their dill seeds. Now, if you want to know what dill seed is, go look it up and see how small it is. And so, like a pharmacist would be counting out little pills, they're counting out 8, 9, 10, oh, 11. Ooh, get that one back. Don't want to give that. <laughs> All right, Lord, here's my dill seeds, 10 of them out of 100. I've done my, I've done my duty. Look at me. I'm going to stand on the corners of the market and say, look, we tithe. And we give all this. This is where it got probably the best example is Luke chapter 18. Look at this one. 9 through 14. You remember this guy? The Pharisee and the publican. And he also told a parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Well, that's kind of an opening line to a parable, isn't it? Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, quote, this is why we believe Jesus probably given us a real live situation that was happening. He knows these things, right? Quote, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The poor sap's over there with his head down. We'll see that in a minute. I fast twice a week. I tithe all that I get. But the tax collector, now the scene comes on to him, standing some distance away, was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast a clear uh, ancient way of humility, humbling himself, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so clearly Jesus is not regarding tithing as a standalone basis for spirituality. Look, you tithe and you're spiritual, right? We, We clearly see that. But he certainly does not reject the principle of tithing. It's part of Israel's economy, right? But Jesus knew faith giving. Saving faith would produce faith giving. That's what changes in us, right? It's this God-given faith that I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I found. It is that, that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work in our life that changes the way we think about giving. And so we, we tithe or we give, but we still don't trust in the Lord sometimes. And I think that's where we miss the blessing of this. The storehouses, the windows of the Lord. And I'm not trying to go charismatic on you, but that's what the Bible says. He said, look, if, if you give to me, I'll, I'll open up the storehouse's windows to you. And I don't know that it's always monetary, but it, it's God showering us with his grace in some way. 
And yet, many of us, because we won't give, we never get to experience that joy. Jesus says in Matthew 15, he says, this people honors me with their lips, he could say with their tithes, but their heart is far from me. And most likely, in some way, we all are a little bit guilty in this, huh? Did you think about your gift with joy today that you gave or this week online or whatever it may have been? I think we probably all admit that sometimes we don't do that. Well, I wrote a little version uninspired to this verse this way. Maybe this verse could read it this way. Woe, riverbenders. You will honor me with your lips, but you worship your income, your homes, your belongings, your sports teams, your children, your 401k, and your desire to retire in comfort, but your hearts are far from me. Boy, I hope that's not said of us. See, it's challenging when, I, when you study this, because I have to think of my own life. I, well, this has to go through my mind and heart long before I get to do this. Oh, Lord, where's my desires? Where's my heart? And maybe you do give 10% to the church. But does that mean you're a good steward of the rest? As all things belong to the Lord, are we motivated by his glorious act? And I know people always come and say, Scott, there's a stewardship aspect of things. You've got to speak on stewardship. I, I get stewardship. But that's always a fallback for those who are trying to protect something. And, and, and we see that. We see the way Jesus handles things. Jesus says to his followers, follow me, leave all and follow me. Zacchaeus said, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone, I'll give back four times. That's 50% he gave. The woman in Mark chapter 14 who breaks the seal and pours this costly perfume on Jesus a year's wages. Once she broke that seal, it was poured out on his head and she was challenged by the disciples for being wasteful and she gave 100%. Jesus rebuked them and said, wherever the gospels preach, this woman will be remembered. The widow gave two coins in Luke 21, 100%. Others vowed to follow Christ, and they said, look, we're going to follow you. And he says, sell all your possessions and come after me. Give all away, 100% give away and follow me. At the birth of the church, there were believers who were selling their land and their houses, and they gave the proceeds to the apostles. And the Bible says that there was not one needy person among them in Acts chapter 2, verse 44. Others lied about what they were going to do, and they fell dead at the feet of the apostles, Acts 5, 5. I read a quote recently by Piper. He said this, The question is not whether I should tithe, but rather how much of God's trusted funds do I dare use to surround myself with comforts? Ow. That's what I said when I read that. Mm. What do we do with our homes? What do we do with those things? Is your home a place where the gospel is preached, where the gospel is talked about, where compassion is given, where hospitality is given? Yes, we have homes and we have mortgages and we have all those things. I'm not saying those things are gone. I don't think the Bible is either. But where your treasure is is where your heart is. And it's hard to get around that. And so is it a corruption of legalism? Is it faith-driven, faith-driven giving, or is it just plain lack of worship? Well, 
In closing, I want to hit my last point real quickly. The dangers of a church that toils in vain for the Lord. Please go back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I just want to hit three passages real briefly and then we'll sing a song to the Lord. I don't think this church was a giving church. And I think I can prove that to you here in the next moment. But Paul says, my beloved brethren. I, I think that's, that's something that has to be looked at. These are Christians. Most of them. There's some false teachers among them. He's rooting them out that these are people who profess Jesus Christ as their Savior and King. Be steadfast. Be immovable. And then look at this adjective. Always. Adverb. Always. Abounding. Always abounding in the work of the Lord because there's no way you want your toil to be in vain, is it? Corinthian church had problems. Just look at the next couple of verses and we begin to see that their living, their giving struggled, but this is, this is just struggles all along, right? There were factions and false doctrines. They loved wisdom rather than men, uh, rather than Christ wisdom. They, they quenched the spirit in chapter two. They rejected the servants of Christ like Paul in chapter three and four. They, they were entrenched in immorality that would go undisciplined in chapter five. They sued each other in chapter six and mistreated the body of Christ. They made a mockery of marriage in verse chapter 7, and they celebrated liberties uh, and freedoms, and even though they knew they were causing stumbling blocks to young believers in 9 and 11. They repeated the past um, that of what happened to the Old Testament saints, and they fell into the same temptations. They, were allowed, uh, they allowed some to abound at their God-given roles of male and female and headship and submission. All of that was gone. He deals with that in chapter 11. They made a mockery of the Lord's table and turned it into some kind of pagan festival and lack of gospel influence on that. They were lured into spiritual superiority and desired gifts for their own, uh, their own markings and their own pride, and, and it broke down their unity. They lost their first love, and Paul has to preach on love, uh, the simplicity and the clarity of love, and that love robbed them of beauty of edifying one another. They're called infants, spiritual infants. And they lacked clarity on the gospel. And that led them to not even understand Christ rose from the dead. And, of course, that affected their view of their own resurrection. So do you think they were bounding in the work of the Lord? Do you think they were toiling in vain? Do you think they were good givers to the Lord because they worshipped him? Well, look at chapter 16, verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, and certainly this is, has a lot to do with Macedonian church and things like that. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you. And this probably isn't new. This is something they should have been doing. On the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collection be made when I come. See, he has to give simple instructions. Hey, when you gather on the first day of the week, that's Sunday. You can see the church gathered on Sunday. Give. So I don't have to come and preach a sermon on giving. <laughs> I think that's what he's saying in so many realms. They just had not learned to give. Look at chapter 8. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Just two passages and, and I'll be done here. This is, I just want, th these are so beautiful. These, I just sat in awe of the scriptures as I read through these this week. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1 now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God. Isn't that interesting? 
Is he going to talk about him death on the cross? Is he going to talk about his resurrection? Is he going to talk about that? He's going to actually talk about giving, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. The grace of God is spreading. That in a great ordeal of affliction, this is what's happening to the churches in Macedonia. Um, there's affliction, and they're abundant, but in there, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in wealth of their liberality. So these people in Macedonia are going through tremendous affliction, but they have an abundance of joy. They're in deep poverty, but they're flowing in wealth because they give. For I testify that according to their ability, look at this verse, and beyond their ability, this is faith. When, when you give, when you go, God, I, don't, I know there's a need. I'm not sure how I'm going to make it, but I'm going to give. This is what they did. I testify. Paul says, I testify that according to their abilities and beyond their abilities, they gave of their own accord. I like that own accord. I hope that you don't come away from this and go, well, Scott's really honest about, you know, giving. And he's got, our, he's got our arm up behind our back. I hope you give on your own accord. I hope you love Jesus and you give. And notice what they did. Notice they're begging us, verse 4. They're begging us, can we be involved? Can we get involved? Can we, can we have the favor of participation in the support of the saints? When was the last time you heard that out of a, a church? Let us, let us give. I pray with some men that are just members of the church. They're, and I shared some of my concerns and hearts. And one of them rebuked me and he said, why haven't you told us this? Why aren't you not letting us participate to fix some of these things? I put my head down. I said, well, I'm going to. I said, I love this. This is the Macedonian church. Let us participate. And this, not as we expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. There's the key. You want to figure out how to be a good giver? Give yourself to the Lord and to us by the will of God. God wants our souls <laughs> He doesn't need your money. The money comes when you give your soul to the Lord, when you say, Lord, I'm yours. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Let's go. See, this is what's happening here. So we urge Titus that he, he had previously made a, made a beginning so that he would also complete in you the grace work as well. So we sent Titus to you, right? Remember that Titus carries a letter. He goes, look, we sent him to you. This is a letter probably that we don't, it's not inspired, but he brought him and says, hey, you want to get involved. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and all the eagerness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in the gracious work of God. They seem to be responding to certain areas, but they're not responding in giving. And he's saying, come on, you're missing out. Verse 8, I am not speaking this as a command, but I am proving through the earnestness of others and sincerity of, for your love. Also, I'm telling people of who you are. For I know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look what he, look what he really concludes his statement with. Look where he goes to the gospel to help us give. That though he, Jesus, was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that, there's the henna clause, there's the statement. So that you through his poverty might become rich. I've said this so many times in the pulpit. We are the richest people in all of eternity. And it isn't have dollar signs. What we have is eternal and glorious. God makes the, the asphalt gold. You walk on it. 
compared to what we have in our position in Christ. I mean, it's fascinating. One more text, like just forgive me. Chapter 9. For this is superfluous, super, 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 meaning unnecessary for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. I, you, you should, I shouldn't be having to write unnecessary. You should be responding to this. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians. And I, I love what Paul does. He knows they have a problem, but he's still encouraging. He's still trying to find the best things to say about them, even though they're failing in some areas. Verse 3, but I sent brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be empty in this case. I boasted about you in other areas, but I don't want you to fail in this. I don't want you to fail in participating financially with what God's doing, joining what he's doing, so that I, uh, so as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. Don't disappoint. These people, they see Corinth as this great church, this church, this big church in modern-day Corinth. They, they want to join with you in the gospel ministry that's going around the world, verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead of you and arrange before your previous promise a bountiful gift so, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not, affect by, not affected by covetousness. So what Paul's saying is, look, I stepped out on faith. I said, okay, go ahead and spend the money. Corinth is going to come through. Don't disappoint. And then he says, don't let covetousness rob you of participating in the gift. Wow, what a statement. Is, and that is, it, it, let me just be honest. There are things we covet. It's the last of the commands. It's the unseen one. It's the one Jesus gets the young, rule, uh, young ruler, young rich ruler on. It's, it's the one that we can hide because covetousness stops us from often participating in the things God wants us to do because we're coveting something. And he says, don't let that stop you. So much more to see there. I'm out of time. We need to sing. Lord, thank you for this message. I, it's everything I have, Lord, in me to do this by your strength. Um, I pray, Lord, that we would be a church that would respond and live by faith, Lord. And Father, if, if this is what we can give, if we, we are maxed out, Lord, if, if, if we are all giving to the best of our abilities, Lord, then God, help us live within that. Help us not live outside of that. And Lord, where we fail, may we repent, both as church, as individuals. Help us live with what you give us in the most glorifying way. Lord, we pray that you would stir all of our hearts. We give you praise for this in Jesus' name. Amen.